Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Kenneth Bornilsen. I'm a social anthropologist based in Oslo and also the coordinator of the Norwegian Network for Asian Studies. In this episode, we'll be discussing a brand new book on climate and development in Bangladesh. The book in question is titled Misreading the Bengal Delta, Climate Change, Development and Livelihoods in Coastal Bangladesh, published by the University of Washington Press. And I'm delighted to have with me the author of the book. Uh, welcome, Camilla Duan, postdoctoral research fellow at the Department of Social Anthropology at the University of Oslo. And not least, congratulations on your brand new book. I'm told the ebook version was just released uh, a few days back. Thank you, Kenneth. I'm very happy to be here and uh, really appreciate this invitation. As we know, Bangladesh is one of the top recipients of development aid earmarked for climate change adaptation. It has also been described as a ground zero for climate change. And yet, as you point out in your book, Bangladesh's current environmental crisis goes much beyond just climate change. It extends to coastal vulnerabilities that are entwined with underemployment, debt, and the lack of universal health care. But before we go into the details of your arguments, I'd like to know what made you interested in climate change and development in Bangladesh in the first place? Uh, that's a great question, Kenneth. I've been working on uh, water in the coastal zone of Bangladesh for over a decade now. So I started off as a research consultant uh, for the International Water Management Institute looking at water governance of embankments, flood protection embankments, and sluice gates. I was really interested in the siltation and dying rivers that had resulted because of them. So I wanted to do a PhD on siltation and dying rivers. But then I got the advice from a really reputable researcher that whatever I want to do for my PhD, I should add climate change to my funding proposal and I'll get funding. And I did get funding, uh, three different PhDs, actually, because it was still in 2012-13 quite new. And um, this made me wonder whether or not this climate change as a spice, as my interlocutors uh, refer to it, or a password for funding, if this risked misreading environmental relations in ways that diverted attention away from where it was most needed. So, for instance, that flood protection embankments can be seen as climate adaptation when actually they have a lot of environmental problems. Your book is essentially an ethnography of both Bangladeshi development professionals and also rural people in the coastal zone. Could you tell us more about your fieldwork experience and trying to explore climate change issues in what are really two quite different settings in Bangladesh? Yeah, no, it's um, I'm very much inspired by the anthropology of development and ethnographies of aid. And I was a development professional myself, so I have quite a few contacts within the Bangladesh's development industry. But then I also wanted to do an ethnography with local people, rural people, these so-called beneficiaries of development projects to understand whether or not there's disconnect or mismatch between what these development projects seek to do 
and what local people actually want. And it's not always the case that these Bangladeshi development brokers and their projects match the needs of local people. Sometimes they are in the interest of them. So, for instance, with rural employment schemes that excavate canals or sustainable forms of agriculture. So there is a disconnect that becomes quite apparent when you do this type of multi-sited field work. This work in the coastal zone enabled you to explore a variety of environmental challenges in these areas. And you also point out that particular development projects may, in fact, end up making things worse and not better. In what way can this happen? Again, this is about the disconnect. So I start the book off with talking about the flood protection embankments, but also brackish shrimp cultivation and the saltwater suffering where basically some donors suggest that Bangladesh is going to drown in rising sea levels anyways. So Bangladesh might as well just import rice and cultivate shrimp or saltwater shrimp for export and so on. But if you look at the local livelihoods in the coastal zone, these saltwater practices are really damaging to their everyday lives and reproductive activities, loss of vegetation, loss of local food, and so on. Uh, and they really don't want saltwater cultivation, most of the poor or landless people. It's more of an elite business. And then uh, in terms of agriculture, there's still quite a push. I know it's quite different in Sri Lanka and India. There's more of a push towards organic agriculture. But Bangladesh is often cast, well, it is overpopulated and with 160 million people and the landmass is very scarce. So there's a really dominant narrative about higher yields to push as much yields as possible from the land. And what I thought was interesting was how people problematized all these high yield technologies. So for instance, there are high-yielding rice varieties that people believe taste less and that they taste less because they're grown with synthetic macro-fertilizers like urea, which is basically just nitrogen. And there was this kind of mourning of soil fertility or shokti because of too much fertilizer resulting in soil acidification. So there's a lot of critiques of health, uh, bringing in divine vengeance, both from Muslims and Hindus, a critique of human hubris and greed. And also food is extremely important in this setting. So, you know, the saying is rice and fish is what makes a Bengali. So what happens when both the rice and the fish are perceived as corrupted or adulterated? Or Bejal is the term they use and I engage with in the book. So there's this loss of taste that they also mention signifies a loss of nutrition in the food and strength that goes from the soil and food to humans so that people are eating this food and becoming weaker and with poorer health. And these kind of things don't fit in a climate change narrative. And so there are various issues one can go on with in terms of um, talking about higher yields. And in the book, I talk about a history of colonial agriculture and the introduction of the Green Revolution to Bangladesh and how people perceive these changes now. And the pressing problem now is climatic change. So if we have 
instead of 30, 40 different rice varieties, only two, three, that is more vulnerable with unpredictable weather changes. If we see soil acidification and declining soil fertility, that is also a problem for the future that we need to address. So in order to be resilient, we need to have a healthy ecology and rich biodiversity, both in soil and waters. So basically, if we continue with this dominant narrative of increasing yield through intensive practices and monocultivation, this reduces soil fertility. So how can we then address these climatic vulnerabilities exacerbated by changing weather patterns? And I'm also interested in looking at the materiality of this critique because anthropologists have long talked about, you know, these critiques against the Green Revolution as a social critique, a critique of social change. Things are changing and that's why they're critiquing it. But I wanted to take the materiality of this critique a bit further and got interested in the multi-species turn in environmental anthropology and thinking of Shakti perhaps as some sort of symbiosis, so this um, holistic interaction between different types of species, including microorganisms and cow dung in the soil and with earthworms. So a lot of things that just don't get space to be articulated through a climate change adaptation lens. There's a somewhat related argument in your book that I noticed and which may come across as perhaps somewhat controversial, namely a proposition that flood protection embankments against rising sea levels may actually increase flood risks. What more precisely do you mean by this? You know, the interesting thing that you call it controversial is that this is not controversial in Bangladesh because this has been public knowledge in the country for more than 100 years that embanking hydrologically active delta that erodes and accretes, that this increases both siltation and flood risks. And in the book, I trace the history of embankments, um, how they started off as these temporary earthen structures that prevented dry seas and salinity from reverting newly cut mangroves or newly cut mangroves had become rice paddy fields. So to prevent these new agricultural lands to revert back to these mangroves, cultivators would build embankments or very small embankments only for the dry season. So they're called eight-month bunds, Ashtamashi bunds. And then during the monsoon, they would be torn down again to enable flooding. So it's quite interesting to see from the time of James Reynell in the 1770s to Gastrell in the 1850s, how they don't talk about floods. They talk about the blessing of inundation of Bengal. And that is the key to Bengal's fertility. So it was not bad floods. But then you also see during the 1880s and 90s a push towards railways and embanking the Bengal Delta, which if the historian Iftigar Iqbal has written wonderfully about also in the southeast coastal zone. And even then, there were several colonial civil servants critiquing this, saying, you know, this isn't a sustainable solution. And in the 1920s, there were so many reports about the Delta silting up where there had been embankments. So the colonial critique has been there for a long time, recognized by the Bangladeshis living there. But then after uh, independence from the UK and the partition of Bengal, there was a lot of chaos that I also write about. 
and the system that was in place was disrupted. There was no irrigation authority. The landlords that would take care of these bums had left. So in the 50s, there were a series of really damaging floods with salinity intrusion during the dry season. And a UN mission that recommended that the coastal zone be embanked with these Dutch-style polders. And so they built them throughout the 60s when Bangladesh was East Pakistan. And there were lots of problems. And I don't know how to best describe this also because it's audio now and I don't have images. But what happens is this is a silted delta. So during the monsoon, without any embankments, the sediment-laden river water merges with the monsoon rains and floods the floodplains and increases it or, or increases the height of it. So when you embank these floodplains, then that silt can't deposit on the land. It deposits on the riverbed, raising the riverbed. And so you get a bit of a height difference where during the monsoon, the land is lower inside the embankment than outside. And so the monsoon water gets trapped in a flood called waterlogging. So there are three different types of floods to simplify the Bengal Delta, and that is Bosha, which is monsoon rains. Then you have Bonna, which is this irregular flood that happens with tidal surges and cyclones. And then you have Jolobodho, which is waterlogging, drainage congestion. That is when the monsoon rains cannot drain out into the river. So Jolobodho became a huge problem in these embanked areas. And so in the 1990s, when some donors led by the French wanted to promote the flood action plan and embank the delta further, there were huge civil society protests in Bangladesh, uh, really huge. And it actually didn't materialize. So they stopped it there. So it's, that's why I found it so interesting that now with climate change, this exact same type of infrastructure, concrete embankments, to make them higher and wider, that this is cast as an adaptation solution. And several natural scientists have recently been engaging with this. So there's a study in Nature by Auerbach et al. from Vanderbilt University. And they found that the unembanked Sundarbans mangrove forest in Bangladesh, that it had been raising land levels or like keeping up with sea level rise to an extent, whilst the embanked floodplains are silt deprived. So actually that embankments worsen the risk of floods. So that isn't my argument. That is part of the scientific community. And now a lot of Bangladeshi scholars are working on nature-based solutions or silt management. And a promising one is going back to tidal river management, which means cutting up embankments and letting silt in for a few years to raise land levels inside. Because in that sense, the Bengal Delta has this inbuilt mechanism to withstand rising sea levels. So building higher and wider embankments creates a false sense of security and it's very short term because the rivers have been eroding for millennia. So they move eastwards. So they erode on one side and accrete on another. That's why we have chars in Bangladesh. And what this has led to and what I wrote about in my previous research job for IMI was this constant and huge maintenance expenditure. You build the embankments, but you have to maintain them because they will break they will erode. So it's also very problematic with concrete in an eroding and accreting delta. So there are scientists looking at mangroves as more of a suitable solution too. So it's a very complex problem, no easy solutions.
You've mentioned now a few times the inspiration you found in various strands of anthropology. And one thing I think we always expect from anthropologists is to come up with unexpected findings from their research. So asking this question as a fellow anthropologist, I wanted to ask you about the most striking thing that you weren't expecting to find during your fieldwork. You know, when you start off with the perspective of climate change adaptation, it could have limited me quite a bit, but I, that's why I find ethnography so wonderful because that gives such different type of insights. And one of the most pressing problems was a gendered problem in this area because people are so dependent on projects, development projects, and there's a huge competition to get development projects. And most households are indebted to four to five NGOs. And what surprised me was how marriage had become a business for many men who were underemployed in a way or wanted to get a higher social status. So there were huge issues of domestic violence, child marriage and dowry related violence, even though this is a Muslim area, mainly Muslim area, there's become this gifting, doting on the son-in-law kind of a practice that basically works like dowry. And so all of these issues that I found were unexpected ended up in the last chapter as the actual livelihoods concerns or the coastal vulnerabilities through the perspective of my interlocutors on their most pressing everyday life problems. In the introduction to the book, you're quite explicit that you see it as a decolonial project that explores these links between colonial forms of knowledge production and the more recent knowledge production of climate change. But more specifically, how does your book contribute to these current debates on decolonizing development? So I start the book with a bit of a personal story of how I myself am born and raised in Sweden to Bangladeshi parents. So growing up, the portrayals of Bangladesh have always been victimizing, pauperizing. And what I now realize was we're simplifying in a historical. So I wanted to provide a historical context to this country to show how colonial interventions and even development or development aid has impacted and shaped Bangladesh to what it is today. And also to show, you know, the agency and resilience of Bangladeshis themselves. So actually, I think what every chapter that I deal with when talking about historical context touches on and engages with the structural adjustment policies of the 1980s and 90s in Bangladesh and the minimization of the public sector. And that is, I think, still clear today because we see donors' priorities. So if it was flood protection in the 1990s and climate adaptation today, how well aligned is this with local needs? And actually with the debt of my interlocutors, there is such poor, basically non-existent public health infrastructure in the coastal zone. People in debt themselves to keep their family members alive and healthy, either going to India or Dhaka, taking huge loans to do so or selling off land or what they have. And that is one kind of coastal vulnerability I engage with. If we look at the pandemic, it really shows how we cannot look away from structural needs and inequalities, that we have to think about health as a right 
And I'm very glad that Bangladesh was very proactive in the beginning of the pandemic because it's unclear how many people would have survived it or even dealing with long COVID. But we'll see how that goes. I think the issue of healthcare is a really important one in Bangladesh and how many citizen entitlements in other countries are seen as out-of-pocket expenditure in Bangladesh, and that breeds some sort of inequality. So in terms of contributing to decolonizing development, I hope that we can discuss more how to make development aid funding and earmarking more aligned with local needs and go towards more long-term solutions rather than short-term projects. Because establishing a proper healthcare system as a citizen entitlement is one that was basically stopped in its bud with structural adjustment policies. Misreading the Bengal Delta that we are discussing today is, of course, the culmination of many years of work on these issues of climate change and development in Bangladesh. I'm curious to know now that the book is out where you see your own research moving during the years ahead. I mean, I know that for the past years you've been part of a bigger research project on the life cycle of container ships, a project that ethnographically explores maritime working lives in many different contexts. So where do you see your own research moving during the years that lie ahead of you? Working on this book, I got really interested in pollution, toxicity and health. So I'm really excited to be part of this project with Elizabeth Schober and Johanna Markula, as well as a new broader team member, Elizabeth Sibilia, working on ports. And there I'm bringing with me my interest in environmental anthropology because shipbreaking really brings to light uneven or unequal development when a country is progressing towards economic development. Bangladesh is industrializing. It has an aim to become a middle-income country. But what does that do for local poorer categories of Bangladeshis? So I'm really interested in how these industrializations or industrializing activities impact local livelihoods through water and air and health. I would be also, I'm intrigued and also wary about how very close to my field site there there will be this coal plant, the Rampal coal plant, and other kinds of industries now starting, and whether or not or how that will impact this kind of agrarian lifestyle that I witnessed during my own field work. And another interest I have is exploring the issue of food further or tying this with food production and all these ideas of how polluted foods end up causing huge health problems, not only in the kidney and liver, but in terms of stroke and diabetes and cancer and so on. Misreading the Bengal Delta, Climate Change, Development and Livelihoods in Coastal Bangladesh is already out in ebook form published by the University of Washington Press, and I am told that the hardback version will follow very soon. This is highly recommended reading for anyone interested in the global discourse on climate change, development, and decolonization. Camille Dewan, thank you for being with us today. My name is Kenneth Bonilsen, and thank you for joining the Nordic Asia podcast, showcasing Nordic collaboration in studying Asia. (music) 
You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.